Now, the cool thing as we take a look at Isaiah 49 is this. We've entered into one of the final sections of Isaiah. Uh, There's still a couple more partitions that we're going to go through. But the focus up until this time, first 40 chapters are dealing with a lot of judgment, a lot of places uh, where the children of Israel were fallen. Remember, with the two different um, Israel being divided into two parts. And uh, we dealt a lot with that. We delved, delved into the historical issues with Shennacherib and Hezekiah. Then we went back until chapter 48. Now in chapter 49, things are going to change. Chapter 49, there's going to be this build-up. This build-up looking forward to what many people call the Holy of Holies of Old Testament. Which is probably two weeks away. Maybe not. We'll see. Uh, which is Isaiah chapter 53. But each chapter as we go from chapter 49, you're going to feel that build up. As Isaiah, more and more and more, the Lord is laying on his heart the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the, the king that is to come. And he's, he's getting excited and he's going to lay out some intense prophecies in regard to who Jesus is. And for you and I, who have spent any time at all reading the Gospels, you're going to see over and over and over again fulfillment of prophecy and hopefully will be able to guide you through that. So as we look at chapter 49, listen to how it begins. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people, from afar. For the Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. In fact, we see that fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. What do you mean? Well, Gabriel the angel spoke of the name of Jesus before the conception of Jesus. Before he was in the matrix of his mother's womb, his name was given to him. Jesus Christ would be that name. From the matrix of his mother's womb, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. The idea of the sharp sword means his words are going to have power. And authority, but it's interesting in light of Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus is described as what? Having a sharp two edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And in reference to what we see here in Isaiah, we see the same thing in Revelation. It says, Now in the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft in his quiver, he has hidden me. Listen, this is speaking of those. The period of time that's what they call in scriptures the hidden years of Jesus' life. From roughly birth till 30. Or you could say from age 12 to 30. We don't hear nothing about him. He's kind of off the pages of scripture. But what is he? He's that polished arrow prepared in the quiver of God for just the right time. And at just the right time, God sends his son out into ministry. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. Made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, he focuses his attention to Israel. So the prophet, seeing the Messiah, then looks to Israel and says, listen, you're my servant. Now, there's two places, two groups that are called his servant. One is the Messiah. And one is the nation of Israel. Some people look at this verse and say that Jesus Christ is, in real essence, the Messiah, the fulfillment of, uh, of Israel, because Israel means to be governed by God. And Jesus Christ was absolutely and completely governed by God. The words his father gave him to say, these he spoke, the deeds his father gave him to do, these he did. But I think, moreover, the prophet is looking at the nation and, and getting excited about the coming prince, about the one who's going to set them free from bondage, the one who's going to loose them from their chains. And he gets excited and he says, listen, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That God ultimately has a plan for them. That God ultimately has something that he's going to accomplish. And Isaiah, you know, maybe in a, in a point of distress, he goes on to say, then I said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. 
So as he looks and he's thinking, you know, here he, he's, Isaiah, think of the life of a prophet for a minute. Just, just kind of get a grasp of what that was like. Because you weren't exactly surrounded by people who said, what a great guy you were. Nobody really got excited when you showed up. Because they go, oh, it's that prophet, he's going to tell us how screwed up we are. And he's going to share with us this or that or the other thing. And all these burdens that God laid on his heart. Yet he understood that his reward was in God. And his work was for him. That there was a purpose in it. And then we see that he's going to again focus his attention. Listen, do not miss what this verse is saying. And now the Lord says. Okay, now the Lord says. Capital L-O-R-D. We talked about that before. Tetragrammaton, capital L-O-R-D, is the very name of God. Yahweh, Yehovah, whatever, whatever way you might lean towards the name of the Lord. Now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant? Who is speaking? Almighty God is speaking. Yahweh is talking and he says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant? Referring to... To the Lord, to God. God is saying, who formed me in the womb to be uh, his servant? To bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. Now there's the root purpose ultimately in what the Messiah is going to do. And I love, once again, he uses the two names for Jacob, right? He says to bring Jacob back, to bring Jacob back to the Lord in repentance so that Israel, those who are governed by God, will be gathered to him. It's that reference of God changing the nature of a nation. And if God can change the nature of a nation in the pages of Scripture, He can still change the, the, the nature within a nation today. He says, listen, I will call unto Jacob, bring him back to the Lord so that Israel is gathered to him. The ultimate goal, the ultimate work with the Messiah, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. So you see here, when we look at this verse, in, in, uh, in verse 5, it's, it can be confusing if you have any other viewpoint then there is one God manifested in three persons, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, because you have more than one person talking to himself. Being formed by another. Trusting himself into the hands of another. He, it's the son talking to the father, but each are utilizing the same phrase, Yahweh, when it introspectively for one another. Because, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Echad. Unified. Like a, a man and a woman are unified. One flesh. Same exact word. So as we go through pages of Scripture, that doesn't mean that we have the ability to formulate in our mind how that works. I, I don't totally grasp it. I totally believe it. But I don't totally understand. But you know, I don't totally understand what makes my car start either. But when I turn the key, it happens. And when it doesn't, I know something's wrong with it. Do I have to understand how it works to start it? Not neither do the rest of us, huh? And if it don't start, we're going to call Alan and say, Brother, what's going on? But the idea is the same, okay? We don't have to fully understand it, but we see it in the pages of Scripture. Now again, prophetically, he's going to speak. It's talking here about God becoming flesh, being formed in the womb to be the servant, the servant of Yahweh. The, the Word of God, the voice of the Father, all these things, synonymous terms with what Jesus Christ has done. And then in verse 6, another prophecy, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He says, That's too small a thing. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. That ultimately salvation is going to come through the nation of Israel. That is where the Messiah is going to be born from the stock of Israel, the, the, from the, the, the loins of David back to Abraham. 
But as we look at it, as we see it, he, he says that's not the only purpose. That's going to be a purpose. God's not finished with the nation of Israel. He's going to bring Israel back into a right relationship with him. Paul wrote in Romans, for Israel, all of Israel shall be saved. There's no arguing with it, period. Lock, stock, barrel. That's what the word says. All of Israel will be saved. They're going to be saved the same way anybody else is saved. By faith in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Whom one day they will recognize. And God will bring them back. And so this is what he's laying out. This is the, the idea of, of the work that he's going to do. That he's going to go as a light to the Gentiles. That you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. John 3.16, what's it say? For God so loved who? The world. By the way, that covers pretty much everybody. In case that doesn't cover pretty much everybody, the next phrase would, uh, whosoever believes. That should cover pretty much everybody, right? Whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, that's what he's, he's ultimately going to work salvation to the ends of the earth, a light to the Gentiles. A mission that he has with the nation of Israel. But it's going to go on. It's going to move forward still. And then he goes on in verse 7. Yet again, another prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, to the servant of rulers. For kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. What's He saying? That one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To Him whom the nations abhor. The the people ultimately in in Isaiah 53, and we get there next week or the week after, He's going to say, listen, we, we esteemed Him smitten, stricken of God, that God didn't like Him, that He was... He was rejected by the Lord. That's what everybody thought. Nations didn't care about him. Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And didn't wait for an answer while he stood before truth incarnate. Nobody cared. Nations didn't care. Kings didn't care. Nobody cared. But one day, the kings will arise. Now, what usually happens when someone comes before a king? He sits in his throne and everybody else bows, right? What happens when a king arises? A king arises before someone who is greater than him. And so kings will arise and the princes will worship. The nations will bow their knee at the king of kings and the lord of lords. So thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. Now, as we look at that, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. I'm reminded of Jesus on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in that day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you. Can you imagine for Jesus Christ on the cross, God in the flesh, knowing that at a moment you're going to surrender your spirit, And at the same time, having full confidence in the Father that He will preserve you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. By the way, notice whenever the Scripture talks about the cross, it's in the past tense. Had it happened yet? Well, not in our time, but the Scripture says that Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. That was always how God was going to work out salvation for us. So Jesus Christ, you see the picture, Jesus Christ comforted on the cross by the promises as He hung on the cross that I am in my Father's hands. What's the final words that He's going to say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, Father. Here I come. On the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. Listen, not only is there a new covenant spoken of by Jeremiah chapter 31 that's been wrought to us, brought to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the new covenant. 
Not only did he usher in this covenant, this promise spoken of by the prophets, but he is the promise. He's not uh, the way to the promise. He is the promise. Jesus Christ is the covenant that God has given. I will give you as a covenant to the people. To what? To restore the earth. To cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. That you may say to the prisoners, go forth. And to those who are in darkness, show yourself. In Isaiah 61, as we continue uh, through the scriptures of Isaiah to look to the Messiah, we're going to see the mission of, of the Messiah. To set the captives free. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim acceptable year of the Lord. And the day of God's great wrath. To give them beauty for ashes. Oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Isaiah is saying part of the ministry that Jesus is going to do is to set those in bondage free to turn them loose jesus said a demon possessed man free of bondage in chains and in demonic torture in mark chapter 5 jesus said a sick and diseased free from bondage and their infirmities throughout the gospels but luke chapter 13 verse 16 jesus said the righteous dead captive in hades free from their place according to ephesians 4 8 Jesus set those in bondage to sin and the law free in John 8, in Galatians chapter 3. He came to say to the prisoners, you're free. You've been made free. I love that new song that Fritzy's been doing. I think it's called Free, isn't it? Free. And uh, just that, that's, that song keeps ringing in my head everywhere I go, but... That idea, to, to really grasp the idea that Isaiah is talking about it long before it takes place and saying one of the things Jesus is going to do is set them free from bondage. And to say to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Why? Because a great light is dawned. That the light is dawned and that man doesn't have to walk in darkness anymore. He has the light of life. Jesus Christ, the promise fulfilled. Isaiah alluding to this as we take a look. Then... Again, looking forward in the future, he says, They will feed along the roads, and their pastures will be on all desolate heights. Now, specifically speaking of the children of Israel when they leave Babylon and come back into the land. But listen, when we look at prophecy, you'll often see a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Listen to the next words. They will neither hunger nor thirst, neither will heat nor sun strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. Now, in case that doesn't sound familiar to you, Revelation chapter 7, speaking of the 144,000, uses very similar language in talking about those who will have the mark of the Father upon their forehead and a specific call in ministry to be those who would go forward, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes, of Israel, no, I guarantee these guys are not knocking on your door. It's impossible. They'll be having the mark of Jesus Christ on their forehead. And one of the things it talks about is that they will not be hungry or thirsty, that God will meet their need. The 144,000 who will serve on earth during the tribulation period cannot be slain. They cannot die. They cannot be shot. They cannot be killed. They cannot be nothing. Because chapter 7, when they're initiated, God puts his hand of protection upon them. And in chapter 19, when their ministry is done, guess how many there is? 144,000. He took care of them all. But wait, not only that. Maybe that's a a far fulfillment. We see a, a near fulfillment as they come out of Babylon and God watching over them. But what about uh, the call of God calling the children of Israel back to the homeland since 1948? We see them going back 
more and more and more these these incredible deliverances that we see of God as he watches out for him. Listen to verse 11. I will make each of my mountains a road. That means I'm going to take out, I'm going to remove the things that restrain them from being able to enter into the land. And my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Some people say Sinem is China, the far east. The north, the west, the east. Look, here they come. God calling the people back into the land. And then he begins to rejoice. Sing, O heavens. Be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. But His people respond. And Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You go to Israel today, that's the overwhelming sentiment. What am I trying to say? Thank you. The overwhelming sentiment of the people in Israel. That God for how do you call us God's chosen people? Look at our history. Look at all the things we've been through. Look at the Holocaust. Look at the horrible things that have happened. Every nation on the earth has hated us. If we were God's chosen people, wouldn't we be favored? Wouldn't life be extra easy or good for us? And here's that same sentiment in Isaiah. The Lord has forsaken me. And my Lord has forgotten me. So the next two chapters, God answers that question. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? God's first response is, my devotion toward you is greater than that of a mother for her nursing child. God's devotion toward Zion, the nation of Israel. Surely they may forget, but I will not forget you. See, God will always be faithful to himself. When God made the promise he made to Abraham, it's an everlasting covenant. It can't be broken. For God to break it, he would have to break his word. God doesn't break his word. No matter what. Though they forget me, I will not forget you. Isn't that comforting to think that that's the the kind of God that we serve? The God that doesn't forget us? I'm thankful that God didn't forget me for about 13 to 17 years that I wandered in an outright rebellion as, as hard and fast away from the Lord as I could possibly do. I'm thankful God didn't forget me, that God was there for me still. Now listen to verse 16. Don't miss it. Listen. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. When did God do that? Yeah. Look, Thomas, put your fingers in the the wounds on my hands. Stick your hand in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. See, God wrote our name on his hands when he was crucified, when he's nailed to the cross. I have written or inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And your walls are continually before me. Listen, what he's saying to Israel is, the security of my people is important to me. Your walls are always before me. I'm always concerned with the security of my people. That is why it is of vital importance that we find ourselves on the right side of Israeli conflict. Because the wrong side of an Israeli conflict is in opposition to God. And this whole book is full of people who've been in opposition to them. It has not ever turned out good. And it won't for those who find themselves against him. Look what he says in 17. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Everyone who laid them waste, lay them out. Babylon, Greeks, Romans, where are they today? Everyone who destroys you shall go away from you. So lift up your eyes and look around and see 
All these gathered together and come to you as I live, says the Lord. You shall surely clothe yourself with them as, uh, with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. It's the regathering of Israel as the Lord calls the people back to the nation. Saying you're going to put them on as a garment. You realize from the moment of the inception, uh, when they were, were first recognized as a nation, the war started, right? The minute. The war started. 1948. If you want to join a military service where I can guarantee you, you will see action, call them up. Tell them you want to sign up. They'll let you come. You can serve two years. I guarantee you're going to fight just about every day of your life. It is never dull. And every man, woman, and child serves in Israel. Everyone to be a part of the nation must serve two years of military service. Which, by the way, is the rule in just about every country other than the United States. Because those who are willing to serve their country understand a little bit more about their country before they go running off burning flags. They get a grip. If nothing else, at least they had to, 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 to bleed for their nation before they go misrepresenting them. Nonetheless, this is what the Lord's talking about, gathering the people together. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. You know, Israel's a pretty tiny place, right? The center of the, of, the, of the world on the news, over and over and over again, Israel's coming up on the news. It is a dinky little place. Now, that's not what God gave them. God gave them a big place, from the Nile River to the Euphrates. Look on a map. That's big. And one day they'll have it. But what is the Lord saying to them? Look, when you come back from the desolation, when the land has been destroyed, let me tell you, the land's too small for you. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. Where are they? Where's Rome, the last the country that destroyed them? They're gone. They may dwindle their way back in, but they've been, they've been pushed away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. And you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I lost my children, and I am desolate, a captive, and wandering to and fro, and who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? He's talking about the nation coming back from the brink when everything was lost. Don't lose sight of the fact that in 70 AD, there was no one there. They're scattered like a like sand in the wind, gone. And the fact that they are brought back into the land, looking around and saying, wow, how did this happen? Where have these children come from that we had? How did we end up here? How have we gained the land again? And the Lord laying out for them, this is, when you say I'm forsaken, God has forgotten me, God's saying, listen, look at all these things that are going to take place. I haven't forgotten you. My hand is on you. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the people. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. God's saying one day all the nations are going to bend over backwards to take care of Israel. One day, they're all going to do everything they can do to reach out and to be loving to, to God's people. It says that they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Are you waiting for the Lord? Are you waiting for something else? You waiting for your ship to come in. You waiting for something to happen. You waiting for anything. If you're not waiting for the Lord, you're wasting your time. The Lord says they will not be ashamed who wait for me. Well, Jackie, it's been 2000 years. 
So? Anyone who died waiting for the Lord is not ashamed, are they? Because what happened? They're waiting for the Lord. They're, they're out there making their life, living their life, doing their life for the Lord. The God is their focus. Their focus is not. How much food can I possibly store up in my house for when things get hard? Their focus is not. What do I need to do to make sure that I'm being prudent and taking care of all these things when, when life is, becomes a struggle? That's not their focus. Their focus is on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord will not be ashamed. Oh, come on, Jack. You know, God helps those who help themselves. Really? Find it. Benjamin Franklin said that. Not Jesus. So, what am I saying? Simply this. Our focus needs to be utterly, totally sold out for Him. Anything short of that is not a focus. You're not living for Him. You're not looking for Him. You're not looking to live your life in a way that when the Lord comes, you're found being and doing what you ought to do. But what if we run out of food? I don't know. You heard of Elijah? He didn't have no food. Remember what God told him to do? God said, Elijah, go down to the brook and sit by that tree. And the ravens brought him food. But you know, other people, God said, sorry, brother, you're not going to have any food. I've called you to die in this place. But you die looking for me. You die looking for my face. Because you won't be disappointed when you see me. Is God in control or not? Is God able to do abundantly above what we can ask or imagine? Is God able? Am I saying we shouldn't run around and be lazy and irresponsible? No, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying our focus ought to be on the Lord. What's God calling you to do? What's the Lord directing for us? What is God saying? This is my purpose in your life. Because if your purpose in life is to amass for yourself stuff, the Lord told a story about a guy like that. You remember? Oh, he had all these fields and he brought in all this great harvest. And he said, you know, I brought in so much stuff. My barns won't even fill it. So I'm going to tear these barns down and I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to fill them. And when they're full, then I'm going to take it easy. And God said, thou fool. I like the King James there. Thou fool, today your soul is required of you. You lived your life for the accumulation of stuff. That bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys, he don't win nothing. He who dies, yeah, he who dies with the most toys still dies. But for some people, that's their, that's their life. That's it. When, when the Lord lays out, when Isaiah says, for, the, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me, that's that concept, that eagerly waiting, looking for the deliverance of God. Now, the nation of Israel, sometimes that deliverance came, sometimes it didn't. But did God always watch out for his people? Do we not learn anything from history? We think God watched out for his people there, but, but Jesus Christ is not going to watch out for his bride? We don't think that? We think Jesus Christ, the, the church, is the bride of Christ, so... Right before he's married, he's probably going to grab the bride and whoop her real good, right? Because that's what we all did before we got married. Oh, no, that's not what we did? I'm pretty sure that, that those of us who have brides, we, we would do everything to protect them, watch over them, keep them. That's what I see on the pages of Scripture. That's what Jesus does. Wait, looking for him. Look for his deliverance. Not how can I save myself. If God calls me to build a big old bunker and fill it full of food, I'll do it. But it's going to have to be the Lord, not anybody else. I'll do what God calls me to do. The point is, if I'm not looking, waiting for him, waiting on him, spending my mornings and my time with him, how am I ever going to know what God wants for me? 
Those who wait on the Lord will not be ashamed. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous to be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty will be taken away and the prey of the terrible will be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you. What did I say? I will contend with him who contends with you. The Lord is the deliverer of his people. I will contend with him who contends with you. And I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. I really don't want to be part of that group. They will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord. Remember, God's answering the question. You forgot us. You've forsaken us. No, guys, this is my promise to you. This is my deliverance for you. And then the Lord goes on. Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or to which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? The people would say, oh, God divorced us. God said, really? Where's the papers? I don't have any signed papers here. You signed papers of divorce for me? Or did I sell you? Now, the Lord's not saying he doesn't have the right to get rid of them. He's just saying he didn't exercise that right. He's saying, I haven't divorced you. I haven't thrown you away. I haven't sent you into slavery. But listen, listen. For your iniquities you have sold yourself. And for your transgressions your mother has been put away. For your iniquities you sold yourself. Children of Israel found themselves in the places that they found themselves as a direct result of the choices they made in their life. The sin that they played with. The Lord said, I didn't forget you. You sold yourself. Sold yourself down the river. So look at verse 2. Why when I came was there no man? Who was waiting for the Lord when he came? Who was standing there looking for the salvation of the Lord? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. The fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. And I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Huh. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and everyone forsook him? Nobody, nobody stood by him at that time. Jesus is on the cross. Do you remember what happened to the heavens? They went into mourning. For the creator of the heavens was dying on the cross. The Lord says, I clothe the heavens with blackness. I, I put them in mourning, wearing sackcloth. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. Again, the Messiah is speaking. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. How many times do we watch Jesus trying to be trapped and speak right to the heart of the matter? Not even sometimes answering the question. Why was he able to do that? I used to make the excuse, well, he's God. Of course, he could do it. So I wouldn't assume that any of the things Jesus did, I would be able to do. But Philippians 2, 5 through 8 takes that excuse away from us. In the great kenosis, Jesus Christ emptied himself of his own divine power. Not of being God but of the use of his power. And he relied on the power of God and the Holy Spirit working in his life. Same God and Holy Spirit that are in ours. He said, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. Paul put it this way. Don't worry about what you will answer. The Holy Spirit will give you utterance when it's time. He goes on, look at this. He awakens me morning by morning. 
He awakens my ear to hear as a learned. What did Jesus do every morning? Read the Gospels. What did he do? Every single morning, he went away to be with the Lord. He went away to pray. No matter how long he worked the night before, he was up early and spending time with the Father. That's how he had the ear of the learned. He got it from his dad, who shared it with him, because he spent time with his father. He spent time with him. Every day. All the time. Focused on what God was doing. Verse 5, he says, The Lord God has opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. Listen, that means... That he brought himself, Messiah, in total submission to the Father. He has opened my ear, speaks of becoming a bond slave. Becoming a bond slave is when you would come to your master's door and you would lean your ear on his doorpost and he would take an awl and he would jam it through your ear into the doorpost. And then he would put a hoop on your ear, an earring. And that hoop said, I am a slave forever by choice. So when the Lord, when the Messiah says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, Jesus, the son is saying, hey, I submitted myself unto the father. I didn't rebel against him. I volunteered for this mission. And I am a bond slave forever. A bond slave was a slave by love. He loved his master So he would retain, he would be that slave forever. You have opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Nor did I turn away, but I gave my back to those who struck me. My cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. He said, I gave my back, my cheeks, my face. Nobody took them. He gave them. And we can go through the pages of Scripture and see that very clear uh, detail of what Jesus Christ suffered on the way of the cross. How did Isaiah know about it? How did Isaiah know that that was going to happen? I mean, you and I, we know it's going to happen. It's almost like Isaiah read the Gospels first, and then he starts to write this stuff. But that wasn't there. The New Testament didn't even exist. This is just God breathing his word into the prophet, and the prophet writing his word down. And you and I, we read it as though, wow, what's the big deal? I don't know, just a thousand years before it takes place. And and Isaiah knows exactly what's going to happen that his back's going to be beaten and jesus is going to give it to him they're not going to take it that he's going to give his cheeks to those who pull out his beard how did they know he was going to have his beard pulled out or that he was going to be spit in his face he's talking about the messiah mashiach nagid god in the flesh do you see how amazing that whole thought process is for a jew to say god's beard's going to get ripped out and his back's going to get beaten and we're going to spit in his face Uh, that's not what he would just sit down to write apart from what god the father is laying out to him in verse 7 he says for the lord god will help me therefore i will not be disgraced Jesus went through a lot of stuff, didn't he? I I might would have thought that he would have been disgraced or that things would have been bad, the things that he went through, the struggles that he had. But listen, he says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. I will set my face like flint. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus said, It's time to go to Jerusalem. The disciples are like, we can't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. No, we're going. He set his face like flint. He went into the teeth of those who sought to destroy him because he believed that God was going to take care of him. And then he was beaten. His 
his beard ripped out of his face, and he was crucified. I thought God said he was going to take care of him. Maybe Jesus should have took things into his own hands, right? Trusted in himself and forget about the Father. Jesus was, is, such an amazing example to me of utter submission to God. I sit around sometimes and I think, well, what if I had done this different? Or what if I had done that different? Maybe things in my life would be turned around. I mean, you ever look at times in your life like those old stories where, what if I had hit the home run instead of struck out? My whole life would have been totally different. Everything would have been changed. But the things that occur in our lives pass through the hands of a God who loves me. And I need to learn to trust Him. Well, some of those things are a result of my sin, truly. But it doesn't change the ultimate fact that God is in control. Things are not just randomly occurring. God's hand is upon everything. So the, Jesus says, listen, I'll set my face like flint. Why? Because he put his confidence in the Father. He didn't fight for his own rights or what he thought things should be. He trusted totally in him. And God did an amazing work. And is the son ashamed? No. Was he disgraced? No. There's no other name under heaven that is greater than the name of Jesus. You know the scripture says that, right? There is no other name. By the way, that would include the name of God that we don't know greater than the name of jesus for at the name of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of who the father to the glory of god the father jesus goes on to say and i know i will not be ashamed confident assurance in the father he is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Trust in the Lord. Not in my own ability, not in my own smarts, not in my own might, not in my own power, not in the power of my army, not in the, in the frailty of my enemy. To trust in the Lord, period. Utterly, completely, totally given over. Trust in the Lord. Look. All who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Listen, in the beginning of that, God is saying, I'm the light. If you're in darkness, come to me, trust in the Lord, trust in your God. But if you are going to make your own fire... If you are going to make your own sparks, if you are going to make your own light, you have this word for me. You will lie down in torment. Not a good word. Not a good thing that the Lord is laying out. Again, as we go through chapter 49, chapter 50, and on forward, more and more we're going to see this crescendo building on the promises of the Messiah, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ is going to give, and what he's ultimately going to rot in their life. And so as we go, as we see this build, as we see this grow, realize every step that we're taking, every, every time we delve into the truth of what the prophet laid out, God is calling out to his people, I have not forgotten you. I have not forsaken you. I have a plan. Trust me. And the same word that the prophet gives to Israel, he would give to us. Trust me. Put your trust in me. We're going to go ahead and... Uh, 
close off in prayer. And I invite you, if the Lord gives you a, a word, shares, uh, gives you some scripture to share, what have you, we invite you to take part in that. We also encourage you uh, to, to pray, to, to call upon the name of the Lord. You may pray out loud uh, in turn with us. You may pray silently to yourself. But don't let this time pass away. It's another opportunity for us to seek the Lord's face. To proclaim our trust, our faith, our love for what God has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that we can come before you in this time. Lord, we thank you for the the truth of your word, God, and the fact that Isaiah so clearly sees the events that surround your incarnation, your ministry, and your suffering. And Lord, you, you, you did all of this just to say, I have a plan for you. And even when you look around and everything looks upside down and nothing makes sense, you trust me. You put your hope in me. You make me your God, the, the one that, that you run to. Make me your strong tower, the one that you climb in and are not afraid. Father, we pray that, Lord, we would just apply that truth of your word, Father, as you're calling us to that relationship with you. That we would see the truth that you are exactly who you said you are. And that being said, there is something that you have for me. I know you have salvation. That gift offered freely by what Jesus Christ wrought on the cross. But more than that, you have a plan, a race for me to run, a path for me to walk, something for me to accomplish. And Jesus, he knew what his marching orders were every day because every morning he spent with you. So, Lord, help us. Help our ears to be opened by you that we would be bond slaves unto God and that we would choose, choose freely to say, Lord God, I, I want to come unto you and I want to fulfill your plan for me today. God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? Who do you want me to call? What do you have to me to fulfill your purpose for me today? God, give us a heart that says we want to know. We want to seek the truth of what you have for us and submit ourselves utterly and completely to you.